and let us bring in Joel Klatt, our lead college, well, the lead college football, not our lead college football analyst. Although no, he's we, still ours. Well, he is still ours, right? Right. He's but he's the, he's ours, but he's also the lead college football analyst yes. at Fox. Yes. But he's our lead college football analyst as well. He's our only college football analyst exactly. that we bring on. We really, so he is the lead. We really lean on him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he's the only guy. You're it, Joel. You're it. What? I... Um, I'm your guy. Yeah. <laughs> Joel brought to us by Audi Flatirons. Let's jump right in there. Do, do you agree or disagree with the scrutiny that Deion Sanders is facing right now over his offensive coordinator switch? Yeah, I mean, these are fair questions. Um, I, they're not unfair, and he can answer them however he wants to. But... Um, yeah, the, the fact is is that, at least statistically, the problem wasn't the offense. However, when you watch some of those games, in particular the way that they played against UCLA, you see a, a real lack of, of a cohesive plan, in particular as it relates to the, the way that they were pass blocking. And when it's Shadur back there, like the, the head coach is just going to be a little bit more sensitive to that. That's, that's also his son, which is a dynamic that is very difficult for, for coaches and coaching staffs. I, I, I didn't dislike the move, but at the same time, it, it does present some problems because it was an offense that was scoring points at times. Um, I think that that probably could have been handled from, from a conversation about play calling, but my suspe- suspicion is, is that that conversation had been taking place week over week over week and then because it hadn't changed, they just said, okay, we're going to make a change. And, and that's my suspicion because Dion is not a guy, whatever you think of him, he's not a guy that does things on a whim. And, and everything, at least from the football standpoint, the staff standpoint, and the personnel standpoint, is, is highly thought out. So I, I would just say, having not been close to it over the last few weeks since calling that USC game, I, I, I would just tell you that there was – I'm sure intense debate and conversation about what was going on and how, how they were attacking people on the offensive side for weeks on end. And then the UCLA game happens. They continue to have guards in one-on-one blocking. They refuse to full term protect with, with someone off the edge. They refuse to throw hot in certain areas and times. And, and that was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and they wanted to make a change. So is it controversial? Yes. And, and do you ask the question? Absolutely you ask the question, but he can answer it however he wants. Joel, I want to talk to you about protection a little bit because <clears throat> I've never dropped back and thrown a pass. You have. Um, so you understand what that is like. And, you know, one of the big things I talk to a lot of coaches about, and sometimes it frustrates me, is the amount of spread. Five wide receivers, and anytime you're into the boundary, you got a couple of short edges with great athletes coming at you, right? With lots of potential blitzers that can really run they're small they're little guys and I always get concerned with that now a lot of quarterbacks I've talked to said hey it's easier for me to recognize who's coming who's not coming but in those situations with five wise you're in 5-0 protection right it's our five against your five and you know it's a little guy that you can match up on a big guy um Ultimately, they're better athletes, so sometimes I like condensed formations. I like to bring as many fat people on the football field as possible so that they don't have you know the, that athletic advantage as much um, from a protection standpoint. But for you, like dropping back and, and doing that, what's easier for you to read? What's easier for you to see as a quarterback? Which do you prefer? 
I, w- I would always prefer all five of my free releases out. Um, because then I, I feel like I can have answers. But you bring up a lot of good points, and so let's let's go over those. If you actually are just in a true spread, and, and you've got five quicks out and no one in the backfield, and you're in a true empty set and, and a detached tight end, so, so then you've just got the five in front of you, then you better have at least two short sight-adjust style routes and or hot answers. On, on both sides of the ball because those edges are incredibly short, right? <clears throat> if you're a detached five-wide look. Now, that's a lot different than saying, like, I want a scat release. Scat release means that, means that like, the back or the tight end is not checking in protection. So you're only going to account for five guys in the protection. What I really loved was was getting into non-convinced, or excuse me, a, a an attached set with a tight end and maybe even a back as well, maybe even two tight ends. And what you're doing is, is that you're creating a longer edge for the edge rusher, but you're still getting five out. And, and, and so for me, what I always liked is that you would slide weak. So you would take care of the weak side. You would always slide the number one, whatever the number one threat was to the weak side, you would slide weak all the way, and then you would have answers strong based on the longer edge for the rusher on that side. He's probably going to have to be in at least a nine, probably a wide nine technique, mm-hmm. which is just going to give me, I don't know, stink, a, a two and a half more yards. That's a full step. That's yeah. a beat. If I can get an extra beat, now I've got something. Um, so that's that, that's the way that I always l- looked at protections. And if you wanted to chip, the only hard part was is I, I think a lot of it comes down to trust. And this is where quarterbacks are narcissists and, and, and we're generally bad guys is that we just don't trust you guys up front right. a lot. So the least amount of guys that we can account for in protection, the better because, and it's not so much the alignment, you know, that the linemen are probably or, or, or most likely going to do their job. But when you're asking backs to scan and tight ends to, to, to banjo and do these style of, of techniques, you're relying on a lot of different people versus just relying on yourself. And so that's why, generally speaking, quarterbacks like the, the, the five free releases. Then it just comes down to like, well, who are you attaching to? Who's the fifth guy? Who is the four down? And then who's the fifth guy? Are you going to attach to the mic? Are you going to attach to the will, the mm-hmm. Sam? Where are you sliding? Are you going to turn? Those different types of things. Yeah, let me ask you one, one more question because this is really interesting to me. And, and I know it's kind of deep football, so I apologize to our listeners. But uh, it's really good stuff. So... From from your perspective, because in my day, up front we called the protections. We remiked or ourselves if we wanted to remike. You know, I mean, it was we'd let the quarterback know, but we basically did all that, and so we were always on the same page. And one of the issues that I have with today's game is they let the quarterback do it all and mm-hmm. call a protection. And what ends up happening a lot of times when you get to play in late, you get you're winding down the clock. The quarterback goes, no, 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 forty five, forty five is the mic. Five hundred. I said that. You know, and you're like, yeah. we don't even have time to re re identify. And it, you know, it's it's one of those things that doesn't work as well. Did you in your time? Did you did you control protection or the O line control protection? And how do you see that working in today's game? We used to do it in, in tandem. So I, along with the center, we would both, we would both point. Now, I, I think what ends up happening is, is that, that quarterbacks and offensive coordinators and in particular passing game coordinators, they fall in love with this thought of, we don't want to side adjust. We don't want to hot. 
Mm-hmm. And and because of that, like we want to push the ball down the field and we want to read out our concepts. So there's this idea that you can always protect yourself and you can always protect yourself by remiking into a pressure. And and a lot of that was born because of zone pressure and the and and the you know, if you want to go back to kind of the, the Tampa defense with, with Monty Kiffin, that was, and I don't want to say it was the absolute first, but it was one of the first to incorporate the zone pressure where they would basically throw a four-man side and drop an end out or some sort of a player out and then still rotate the coverage and play zone defense behind and then still, quote-unquote, pressure the quarterback. And <clears throat> that style of defense was derived specifically to beat the West Coast offense because the West Coast offense always had answers on what would you, you would consider the open side of the protection. So the West Coast philosophy from a protection standpoint was we we're always going to protect the quarterback's backside. That doesn't mean his back. It just means the backside of the concept. So if you're two-jet, two you're sliding weak. If you're three-jet, you're sliding strong. And the whole premise was is that the quarterback's only going to be aware of or worried about one side of the defense. And, and because of that, what happens is is that the, the defenses started to progress and evolve, and they started bringing pressure on that side to cue a hot read from the quarterback to get him to start to throw a hot, whether it's a swing route or a side adjust or something that is his answer, and then drop a defensive player into the lap of that route. So that's why zone pressure was invented, was to – trigger a hot pass from a quarterback. So then what was the answer from the offense? Well, the evolution started to be, well, let's start re-miking and let's pick up that zone pressure and re-slide, re-mic, redo our protection, whether it's late or, or early, so that we don't have to throw hot or sight into a dropped zone pressure player. Okay, so all of that to basically say, you've got to be on the same page. You've got to handle it in a short amount of time. And I think a lot of this is derived through the evolution of defensive pressure and what the offense ultimately wants to do. This is what makes the ladies in Fort Collins swoon when he starts talking quarterback talk like that. Joel Klatt presented by Audi Flatirons. Joel, last one about CU. There is a growing sentiment that uh, Dion is making all of his moves strictly to do what's best for Shador Sanders. And the notion that this is not somebody that is going to be a college football coaching lifer, that he's just here to coach his kids, and once his kids move on, he moves on. What's your take on that? I think people fail to realize that, in his mind, his kids, that also includes Jimmy Horn and Travis Hunter and a number of the other guys, Dylan Edwards, you know, and, and most of the other guys, he's he's genuinely, if you actually talk with him, if you actually sit with them, he genuinely loves his players and he feels like it is his, and this is his word, not mine, it is his ministry to be pouring into this generation of football player because he views all of these guys as needing, at times, a father figure. They're away from their family for the first time. Maybe they don't have a father figure. Maybe their father figure has not been in their life for, for a period of time. And he views his role as stepping in to, as he just put it in the sound that you played uh, earlier in this segment, as, as raising these kids. So I, I don't think that that's the case. I don't think he just views this as his role for, for Shador or Shiloh, for that matter. Um, I, I think it just so happens that Shador is a really good player 
It's also his son, and they can't protect. The bottom line is, is Shador is one of the better players in the country. When given time and their skill set around him, they could score a lot of points, and they just can't protect at all. Their offensive line is as bad as you will find anywhere, and, and the play calling didn't help that. They weren't trying to minimize the impact of the offensive line as much as they were just kind of throwing their hands up and saying, like, well, we can't protect. And then their guards are sitting there and one-on-one, two-way goes with a three technique, and you're like, come on, man. Like, what, what, what are we doing in a protection plan? And so making a switch, I, I, I think, was, was at times necessary. Uh, a lot of people coming after Dion right now, you know, asking him the tough questions and doing some of those things and, you know, talking about run game and talking about protection and all that stuff. And, you know, one of the things I, I was telling Mike earlier is, you know, when you were winning early, like right now you want the grace that you that you want grace extended to you that when you went won early and you call people out for not believing, like you understand to me, I understand why there are some in the media and some people trying to go after Dion because sure. the the grace you you weren't willing to extend is the grace you want right now. And that's, to me, I mean, is that understandable for you as well? A hundred percent. There is no doubt about it. And he's always going to have people that are detractors and he's going to have people that, you know, um, have, have what I would consider to be like kind of a blind faith in, in what he's doing. Uh, but there's no doubt when you come into the press conference after TCU as if that was a, a conference championship game and you're talking about receipts, it's like, well, you know, we everybody else can keep receipts too. And, and the bottom line is he's made some big mistakes from a game management perspective through the course of the season. And, and I mean, the clock management at the end of the first half last week against Oregon State was, was egregious. And he's got to take responsibility for that. And I'm glad that he did right before it happened in that, that interview, that exit interview. But I 100% understand and agree. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that everything is hunky-dory. You know, I mean, there are, there are some serious problems. They've got to get better from a personnel standpoint at the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. He's got to get better in game management. And, and, and here's the other part, and this is the one thing that I don't think that he – probably has a clear view of Shador has got to get better. He holds the ball way too long. And and there are times when that ball has got to exit his hand. He's got to either burn it. He's got to understand what, what's happening. Now there are times when he doesn't have a chance. I, I think that we understand that, but you know, his, I, I, I think that his aversion to throwing the ball into tight spaces because of a potential interception leads to him holding the ball and taking sacks that he shouldn't and really hurts the team. And, and from, for that reason, I mean, I always, I've thought this since I left, I would give anything to sit there and like coach the quarterbacks at Colorado. I would never do that, but it's like, it's the team I love the most. And, and when, when the quarterbacks struggle, I, it just like, eats me up inside. I'm sure you feel the same way when like a guard struggles for the Denver Broncos, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're like, Oh my gosh, can I, let me just help you out. Let me just coach you hard for two weeks. Um, That's always how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't coach. You'd have to take a pay cut. Uh, Visiting with uh, Joel Klatt. Joel, a few weeks ago when we first brought up the Michigan Sure, Mike. I, I mean, I didn't say anything because it's true. <laughs> when we first brought up the Michigan sign-stealing story, you kind of downplayed it. Where are you at with it now? Yeah, I, 
I, I'm, to be honest, right where I was, which is I, I want to let the process play out. It was such a, a one-sided news dump early. I think we all can see that now, right? I mean, whether you were really upset or trying to defend Michigan, and at no point was I trying to necessarily defend Michigan as much as just say, the process needs to play out. We need to find what all the evidence is. And, and, and the fact remains is that we're in this scenario because of a vacuum of leadership and governance from the NCAA. They've just abdicated their responsibility almost completely in terms of governing the sport in any type of, of clear and concise and quick manner. And so because of that, in that void, everyone decided through a mob mentality, they got the pitchforks out and they said, we have the evidence right now, Tony Petito, you've got to act the Big Ten commissioner. And, and listen, he may, but he better do it based on substance and he better have all the evidence and he better have all the evidence as it relates to the NCAA investigation or what his investigation is and all sides so that Michigan can at least have their day to say, listen, this is how we respond to that evidence. The notion that just because of narrative sentiment and mob mentality, that they all of a sudden were going to get Tony Petiti to act, I think was, was a foolish one. And even if he became close or, or pressed in, in towards that decision, I think cooler heads always have to prevail in terms of process. I'm not saying Michigan shouldn't be punished. I'm just saying that the process should 100% run its course before any punishment is, is handed down. And, and the fact remains is that when you're in a position of leadership, this goes for any of you. If you're a boss out there and you're listening, in fact, you know, like your guys, you guys have bosses. I hope they're listening to this. Lord knows they're different from the guys I had to work for when I worked for it with you. But anyways, I digress. The positions of leadership, if you're in a position of leadership, from the outside, your patience is going to be mistaken for apathy. And that cannot waver you. That cannot move you. The pressure to outwardly show something about what you're trying to do or the way you're trying to lead, you should never be be pressured into that. I used to say this to you all the time, Mike, and you used to get so upset. I used to say organizations should never make a move because that's what the fans want. They really shouldn't. Why? Because they don't have all the information nor the expertise to make the decisions necessary to make the ball club better. Well, in any position of leadership, you can't allow someone's disposition on the outside to press you in a direction that you don't want to go. Your patient patience is always going to be mistook for apathy and that can't make you do anything. Uh, well said, well said. Hey, real quick, before we let you go, um, you know, uh, you, you played for Sean Payton. I've, I've got a relationship with him. One of the things he always impressed upon me was, you know, the number one job of a coach is not necessarily game planning or attacking. It's mitigating your own weaknesses. And I thought they did a tremendous job of that, beating Kansas City for the first time in 16 straight law after 16 straight losses in 40 yeah. attempts, you know, little screens and dump-offs to the backs. I mean, that basically managing your quarterback. Do you have the same sense of optimism that seems to be prevalent at Dove Valley right now about this second half of the season for the Broncos? Well, I, I do if they can play that exact blueprint. But if they're taking, taken out of that blueprint and if they're – 
if they have to throw the football when they have to versus when they want to, then they're going to continue to lose football games. So it's, it's all about blueprint to me. If they can stay on schedule, if they can get turnovers, if they can get all of those things that they were able to get against Kansas City, run the ball effectively, then they're going to have a chance to win. But if they, if they can't do those things, Russell has, has shown and it's proven. And I just will, will staunchly sit here and say, he's not a guy that's going to elevate the whole team over its weaknesses. They have to manage and mitigate his weaknesses. If he plays in the pocket of the correct blueprint, he can be successful. But I have not seen at any point since he's been a Denver Bronco a moment where he's going to take the team and take them to another level because of their weaknesses or masking their weaknesses. Michigan and Penn State this week for you. Have fun. Say hi to Jim for us. Yeah, should be a good one. All right. Thank you, Joel. Later, boys. Joel Clatterer, lead college football analyst, our only analyst. Right. He's our only. (laughs) He's our only analyst. But he's the best. He's the lead college football analyst for Fox. He joins us presented by Audi Flatirons.